Be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we are looking, again, at the 30th overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 29, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 22, episode 30, or what the German regionalization team named Beyond Life and Death. I'm your host, John. In my last episode of Blue Rose Task Force podcast, I looked into the behind-the-scenes information of how and when Twin Peaks episode 29 was made, the difference between script and screen, and where all the characters were left as Twin Peaks's original iteration came to a close. For all characters except Dale Cooper, Annie Blackburn, and Wyndham Earl, that is. Today, we're going into the Red Room. And to explore the Red Room, we're going to look into these questions. What can we learn from the original script about Wyndham Earl's plan? How do the Lodge entities make that plan their own? What are the roles of the Lodge entities? Why are Philip Gerard and the Tremonts missing? And where did Cooper fail, or did he? So yeah, last podcast, I specifically separated out the Red Room sequence from all the other elements of episode 29 because it's just too much. You know, Cooper's path through that supernatural realm relates to at least a few different levels of reality. And, you know, before we could talk about how Cooper ended up somehow partnered with Bob, I want to begin with the elements closest to the plot up to this point. And from a narrative point of view, we were promised a showdown between Dale Cooper and Wyndham Earl. And I'm just going to jump into it. What can we learn from the original script about Wyndham Earl's plan? So, yeah, I mean, this showdown has been promised for a little while. And, you know, what do we already know about Earl's plan from previous episodes? Okay, so before episode 29, Cooper and us viewers by this point knew that Earl's plan was originally revenge against Dale. But then it was about gaining the power of the Black Lodge. But then in this episode... It's getting the power of the Lodges and getting revenge against Dale by getting revenge against Dale as the key to gaining his power. The queen that he's been focused on was only his way in. 
Now, based on how everything plays out in this episode, it appears that Earl knows Cooper will immediately go through some Jungian-style lodge space trial. And here it seemingly appears to be helmed by Earl, or it's at minimum disrupted by Earl as he self-inserts himself into the process. But in the show as it was airing, that plan of Earl's is purposely obscured within Cooper's path through the Red Room. You know, because we'll only see Cooper's point of view while he's in there. But, you know, we're in luck because the script lays out clear motivations via a ton of dialogue. And, yeah, I mean, the script, it's uh, bombastic, it's wordy, uh, but it makes sense to be that blatantly clear. It was never meant to be filmed exactly as it was written. I mean, we've got Robert Engels saying as much in Essential Wrapped in Plastic, which I quoted from last podcast, where he didn't expect any of his writing to uh, come out exactly as written. And Frost knew how Lynch adjusted things, too, if for nothing else from the episode 14 script that Frost only wrote. (laughs) And, you know, just like Frost will know how, you know, later on in, you know, the 2015s uh, or so, you know, a few paragraphs of an atom bomb explosion would turn into a large number of minutes when filmed for part eight. Hence the quote that we get uh, from Frost to Lynch, basically saying, use this like a map, not a set of instructions. You know, I, I basically think that the script states things so overly explicitly so that Lynch knew what intentions and plot elements Frost, Peyton, and Engels wanted to convey with their scenes, you know, regardless of how they end up getting filmed. It was most important that Lynch knew what points he needed to accomplish while establishing his tone that he'd be feeling in the moment. And as far as how that script is actually structured, we've got the first three. It's in four acts. They're fairly even. And the first three acts of the script are set in the physical world of Twin Peaks, like, you know, the front two thirds of each act, except for that final scene before the commercial break, which is related to the Black Lodge. And we've got act one ending with Earl scaring Annie to unlock his way into the lodge. And Cooper arrives literally just in time to grab Earl's ankle and get pulled in. So yeah, the short of it, everybody gets into the lodge in Act 1. The long of it, it is abundantly clear how, via fear. Yeah, for some reason, the script makes Act 1 into Earl's three-beat challenge to frighten Annie. The first scare is in Pete's truck, uh, which is basically the same in the show, except, you know, there are more sentences here. We've got Earl threatening to harm Annie, and then he crowns her with the Miss Twin Peaks tiara and kisses her passionately and implies rape if he were younger, which is so... But, uh, you know, Annie actually remains calm rather than fearful, And, uh, you know, she has a rosary in her hand and not acting scared at all because she's staying strong. From here, it cuts to Cooper and Harry finding Pete's truck and heading into the forest after them where Cooper spells it all out. And this is Cooper's words in the script. To fear the worst often causes the worst. He's going to terrify her, Harry. He did it to me. It's what he did to Caroline. Face to face with all that's intolerable, all that is evil. So, you know, what we just saw in the truck, now Cooper's codifying it into this is Earl's plan. And then it shifts immediately back to Earl and Annie for Earl's second attempt to scare her. And Annie basically says, he'll find you. He'll come for me about Dale. 
And then Earl just screams at her about, do you see him anywhere? Huh? Huh? But, you know, then she whispers an unnamed prayer to herself. And, you know, he's he's shown checking his watch, frustrated because she's not scaring. And, you know, he thinks it's on a time clock or whatever. But it doesn't say anything about the actual prayer. And they leave it up to Lynch to basically decide what prayer to use. And about that prayer that Lynch picks, and honestly about Annie's arc through the episode, Lynch includes Psalms 141. And I'm going to read it because we don't have a Log Lady episode this podcast, so it kind of fits in. So it starts out, Lord, I cry unto thee, make haste unto me. Give ear unto my voice when I cry unto thee. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. So, so far, Annie is likening her words to smell, you know, like incense, uh, protective kinds, and uh, specifically referring to her mouth as a gateway to be kept open with a door. So, you know, it's, you know, thematic to the fact that, you know, she's the key to a gateway in the first place. And it's also a good angle for how it could have been her speaking through Sarah Palmer to Major Briggs because she basically asked for her voice to be able to be clear. And, you know, it definitely works out in Fire Walk With Me with the way she's able to speak to Laura. Back to the psalm. Incline not my heart to any evil being to practice wicked works with men that work in equity, and let me not eat of their dainties. So, you know, it, it, it kind of goes in line with, you know, don't eat the fairy's food or you'll be indebted to them or, you know, too connected. You know, she, she doesn't want to uh, fall under whatever evil Earl is planning on using. Some says, let the righteous smite me. It shall be a kindness, and let him reprove me. It shall be an excellent oil, which shall not break my head, for yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. So, which shall not break my head. Head injuries. It's a lynch thing. It's very important. Continuing, when their judges are overthrown in stony places, they shall hear my words, for they are sweet. You know, another way where she's kind of chanting out between two worlds. Our bones are scattered at the grave's mouth, as when one cutteth and cleaveth wood upon the earth. But mine eyes are unto thee, O God the Lord. In thee is my trust. Leave not my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares which they have laid for me, and the gins of the workers of iniquity. So it's basically keep her safe while pushed into the trap set by evil. I mean, you can't get any more one-to-one with the fact that she's getting shoved into the Black Lodge. And the psalm wraps up with, Let the wicked fall into their own nest, whilst that I withal escape. So, you know, she's basically saying, you know, keep her safe and allow Earl to be captured by the traps he himself set. And, you know, it's essentially let the hubris claim the evildoers, you know, based on her wound at the nose, but not on her forehead or over her mouth. I'd say she's more like visually in line with Maddie, by the way, of her injury, rather than a vessel to be possessed like, you know, Ben Horn with the with the wound on his forehead and, uh, you know, Cooper's wound on the forehead. 
and you know the the door of her lips were kept injury free too uh, not not a drop of blood on them so uh visually speaking with all that stuff and you know lynch obviously cares about these kind of details you know he thinks that's where the story is told it sure seems like her prayer was heard even though we don't really get to see her point of view through this so anyway, in, in the actual scene, from here, it shifts to Cooper having another monologue in the woods about why he has to go on alone. And then it shifts to Earl and Annie at the circle. And we get Earl's third attempt to scare her. You know, here we get a lot of backstory that matches well with what we'd been seeing in the uh, intended-to-be-concurrently-released book, the autobiography of special agent dale cooper my life my tapes that ended up being actually released for over a month thanks to abc's second hiatus and the lines in the script begin with you and i have an appointment at the end of the world so you know that line (laughs) survives in the show because it's pretty cool but um to get her scared he essentially makes sure to add a little uh you know fish story about if only young Dale had lived to see it, you know, and he elaborates on how he splattered Dale's brains across the back of the roadhouse just before we left. And, uh, you know, he, he, bas- he basically paints a story of a lie that gets Annie to visualize it, and that begins her fear. And that's when the hole in space begins to open. And, you know, that makes me think of vortexes. But we're, we're now shown Annie's POV in the script where she sees a mother superior nun welcome her. And, you know, she goes over to it and she tries to embrace it, you know, like, hey, my prayer has been answered, that kind of thing. Except it's Wyndham as the nun who then grabs her and pulls her toward the rift. And the script moves on, you know, Cooper's running around the corner, and he just sees Earl dressed normally, pushing her through. And it's the threshold where Annie can see it, but it's also not visible outside of Annie's POV. So that leads me to think how people under the effect of lodge space reality warping can see it inside their own head but it doesn't translate you know nadine feeling like she was a high schooler ben being a civil war general and in this case it would be the same as the established technique that tim hunter used with the bob scenes in episode 16 where he was kind of under more of a lightning kind of lighting situation at the record player listening to it Whereas when we see Donna, you know, we can hear the thunder of the the electrical storm or whatever it is, but we don't actually see the lightning. So, you know, it's like there, there's like these two levels of reality. There's the kind that's supernatural and then there's the regular kind. And uh, Cooper's currently under the regular kind. But it's it's going a lot further than the portal, though, too, because I also think it's just like how in this very episode we've got Ed and Norma dancing to music that no one else can hear. And another connection for later, I mean, you know, Earl dressed as a nun, as a disguise. If he's shown as something else for Annie, it makes sense that when Lodge Laura, uh, when, when the doppelganger Lodge Laura is screaming in the face of Dale Cooper, it kind of makes sense that that little flash we see of Earl could be Lynch basically saying, Mother Superior Nun is a good disguise, Laura Palmer is a good disguise, and, you know, you know, just put a pin in that for later. But, you know, back to the plot. We've got Annie being shoved in, followed by Earl, and then Cooper grabs Earl's leg, but it pulls away, and then Cooper goes in as Harry comes around the corner to observe it close after Cooper. And what we have at the end of the uh, the first act is all the players are inside and it cuts to commercial. Then we get a handful of scenes in Act 2, 
in the regular world where we're supposed to left wondering what has happened to Cooper and, you know, what's happened to everybody else, but especially, you know, suspense for our special agent. And when we finally get to see uh, Cooper back, you know, it's in really dark space uh, that kind of seems like non-existence or something. And we have Cooper's face full of wonder and he's calling for Annie. But then we see a bright light shining and we get a cowled guardian. And, you know, we've seen the 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 cowled guardian before with uh, Briggs's you know, at the uh, presence of Briggs's abduction in the woods at the end of episode 17. And it, the, this, the hooded silhouette when Briggs recounts his experience in the police station when he returns. So I also think it's the same guardian as the passion play as described in the access guide. And to it, Cooper says, where am I? And we get a ripping sound plus white light. And there's a motel reception that he's in. And outside we can see that it's windy and storming outside. And the clerk who's like wearing a brace and uh, has you know, like a tracheotomy plug in there, he says, home. So, you know, think about, you know, how many times Dougie Jones and everybody else says home in season three. And kind of think about the palazzo that Major Briggs talked about in that vision that he had with Bobby that he mentions in episode eight with the season two premiere. But then Cooper asks, is this the Black Lodge? And all the clerk says his name, please. And then we see a 10-year-old boy version of Cooper saying, Dale Cooper. And then we see more switching where he's his normal age self again. And the clerk is replaced with his dad, who is a character that we know now from My Life, My Tapes. And Cooper tries to connect with his father here, but the old man here only spouts off details about hotel amenities and then gives Dale a key. And Cooper, after having spoken to his dad, he says, I love you, and then touches the key. And we get a blinding flash and then darkness. So that's the end of Act 2. You know, we've got, in, in this scene, we've got Cooper going through earlier stages of himself and having the presence of his father now. It's, you know, classically Jungian stuff where, um, you know, the, the little details in a dream, you know, it's like having a parent figure, you know, changing your age. Like it, it essentially follows a dream analysis kind of logic where you could say, you know, Cooper is going into him, is going inside himself to integrate or to further dis disassociate. And, you know, th this script, you know, besides being written in a way that makes me feel uh, we're, we're seeing something that would look like episodes 25 and 26 of Neon Genesis Evangelion that take place inside Shinji's mind as he comes to terms with himself. There are a ton of similarities to uh, season three as well in that, um, you know, there's a lot of locations outside of the Red Room that has a lodginess aspect to them. And, you know, all these different locations in the script, you know, th there's a Red Room, it, whether it's the Red Room is debatable because it doesn't talk about any of the, the flooring or anything. And here's a hotel with a storm outside. Uh, you know, we, we get the actual Great Northern showing up in black and white later, a dentist office. Uh, you know, the shifting from one location to another is similar to um, even how, you know, the roadhouse shifts into a sanitarium probably uh, for Audrey at the end of part 16, you know, things like that. You know, shifting can happen that way. You know, if, if it's like how Annie sees a nun, everyone in season three 
could be having their own kind of scenes and experiences within their own kind of Black Lodge trial. Or, you know, it's it's a way where you can make everyone an aspect of Cooper's internal processes and, you know, they're all still in the Lodge as, you know, pieces of him. Or, you know, you can think that way about Buckhorn scenes and especially Las Vegas taking on shapes of Cooper's mind, just like, you know, we see 10-year-old Cooper and his father speaking to him. Like, you can really make a case that this episode 29 script could fit really nicely within a season three episode. And Flinch and Frost had a little bit more time rather than the network TV speed of you know needing to have these things done on a deadline i bet they would have actually spoken a little bit more to kind of integrate their two concepts together you know that that's that's more hypothesis on my part and a whole bunch of conjecture but um i i really do think it fits in nicely and it's more representative of what we'll see in the future than you might glance at uh, first time reading it but i have to note in this script it sure seems like Earl isn't involved in Cooper's Lodge trial at this point. You know, Cooper just needed a key to get into it. You know, an interesting detail, at the Vortex kind of portal, Cooper does not, you know, he, he's following the way in through Annie's fear, you know, rather than coming in later on his own with Margaret's jar and everything else. So I find it interesting that, you know, once he's in, he still needs a key to get in, and he, he chooses to access via love. You know, he says, I love you, which is genuine familial love with his dad. You know, that's where the key decides to make him flash. So, you know, obviously we don't get to see where he goes from here. That's at the end of Act 3. But we do get to see him enter via love. But at the end of Act 3, we've got Cooper, after that key takes him wherever he goes, and it takes place immediately after the script scene where Harry sees the woman at the gate with the sword. We've got Cooper, now in a black-and-white version of the Great Northern, with a black-and-white checkerboard floor, too. And these these black-and-white squares next to each other, it's similar to, in in the, um, the autobiography of Special Agent Dale Cooper, My Life, My Tapes, it's similar to... Uh, this one set of severed hands, one holding a black square and one holding a white square. The, the hands are part of a repeating set of crimes that Wyndham Earl was probably perpetrating while he was investigating it with his partner, Dale Cooper. It seemed pretty Lodge adjacent back then as well, up to and including Earl being abducted. And, you know, that, that's when I figure we're supposed to assume that he was likely possessed by Bob or maybe one of Bob's cousins. So yeah, the black and the white was, I assume, supposed to kind of symbolize the, the Black Lodge and the White Lodge uh, representations. And in this setting of the black and white gray northern, this is where Cooper walks and sees sees himself walking back to him, except this, this other Cooper has a smooth blank face and all black eyes rather than having all white eyes like doppelgangers in the show. And this black-eyed Cooper is approaching him, but instead of uh, Cooper confronting this doppelgangery shadow self, 
This is when Earl inserts himself into Dale's process. We see a door opening to Cooper's left and to his right, where Earl is on the left beckoning to him, and then Annie is on the right. And Cooper shouts her name, and that's when the door between him and Annie slams in his face, and that's when the act ends for a commercial. And from here on out, same as in the... um, as in the filmed version, all of Act 4 takes place inside the Lodge, except for... Well, I mean, it takes place inside the supernatural realm, except for the final scenes where, um, you know, Cooper brushes his teeth with Bob. So when it comes back from commercial break, it's in the same spot as we were left, where Cooper's trying to force open the door that closed on him to begin the commercial break. And Earl, as a disembodied voice, basically explains what he wants from the Black Lodge. And you know, we, it, it's a Bond villain monologue kind of thing. He says, you're going about this all wrong, Dale. We'll not profit at all from resisting what there is to experience here. That much I do know. Still, an entire life of research and contemplation can't begin to prepare one for the actual experience of being here. So, Earl knows what to expect up to a point. But, you know, he's trying to exploit it and outsmart it, which, you know, hubris again. But, you know, he's also right here openly admitting to never having been there before. He continues, but he accidentally projects his own situation onto Cooper here. He says, you're a tool, a useful one, granted, but it can't very well be said that we play in the same league, now can it? So, uh, (laughs) yeah, that'll come back to, to reflect poorly on Earl. Earl continues to explain why Cooper's past makes Cooper so useful. He says he knows about Cooper's missing three years, Tibet, and his pathetic, eager beaver globetrotting quest for enlightenment, which is a reference to the part two section of the Cooper autobiography that I spoke of at length, even though that section didn't. Um, you know, thanks to Hillary from the 25YL Discord Book Club uh, talking about the um, one bright pearl and all that. You know, it, it's true that Cooper was trying to find enlightenment, but that's also where Cooper notes later on in the autobiography that he noticed an evil presence at that point. So if the evil presence was there and Earl knows about it, that means Earl is probably connected to the evil presence. And then Earl elaborates more in this in this script where he pushes a button and then there's a flash and then Cooper is in the red room. And, you know, again, is it the Red Room? It seems up for grabs. They don't talk about curtains or Chevron. But uh, <laughs> but there is a Duck Amuck reference, actually. <laughs> the the Looney Tunes episode where, um, where Daffy Duck's talking to the animator. Yeah, Cooper asks, where am I? And a painted sign drops in and... and with, with the words written, Pittsburgh, stupid. <laughs> so it, it's also kind of a cartoon for Dale. I, interesting. But the rest of the scene, we've got Caroline at a sink in a small kitchen. But it's really Annie speaking as Caroline. And Annie says, Dale, oh my God, you startled me. I thought it might be Wyndham. And they embrace and say they miss each other. So they actually have a reunion that happens just like that. But then she says she had the most terrible dream where 
I saw the face of the man, the man who killed me, and then speaks some details in the Cooper autobiography, you know, the man who kidnapped her, gave her the drug, it was Wyndham all along, and then it flips back to Annie, when, um, you know, Cooper's like, Annie, like, why would you be saying that sort of thing, is the implication. Uh, but then Annie says, you must be mistaken, I'm alive. But then she starts talking back as Caroline, and... You know, who'll say stuff like, who's Annie? So, you know, here it's always listed as Annie speaking the words. So is she more like a marionette being told to say things as Caroline rather than them visually switching like they do in the episode? I mean, it works well either way, but naming her Annie every time implies that she's kind of crossing wires or speaking in a possessed way rather than initially being Caroline physically, but then staying as Annie. And this makes Cooper say to Earl, like, somewhere, uh, leave her alone. Tell me what you want. Just leave her alone. Which cues a spotlight on Earl and a top hat and tails, plus uh, big band music playing Anything Goes. You know, there we have a musical number that will end up getting repurposed into possibly a Jimmy Scott song instead. You know, question mark. But we've got Cooper turning back the other way but seeing a shadowy earl in a slouch hat holding a thin gleaming medical instrument behind annie and this is where he directs cooper to look in another part of the room which is a flashback and it's earl talking to two police officers describing the crime that he quote-unquote came home to and you know also in the living room we see annie lying on the floor, obviously dead, in the arms of the double, the Cooper doppelganger. And Earl saying, I thought they were both dead. I knew that because I stabbed them myself, he tells the police officers. So yeah, obviously this is a dreamy version of what happened, rather than an official flashback. And the doppelganger, while on the floor there, he opens his eyes and stares at Cooper. And, you know, I'm going to be looking into this scene as it's repurposed into the Red Room later to see if this is possibly the double there as well, rather than Cooper just seeing himself on the floor like I've always uh, assumed at this point. And back to the script, Cooper pleads to not do this. So Earl's plan is officially, you know, to re-traumatize him. And it's working. And, you know, is it just the way the Lodge trial works where is it Cooper associating how he feels about Annie and Caroline and therefore they're kind of one and the same? Or is it Earl basically associating them together in order to, uh, you know, create a repeating pattern to get the feelings that he needs from Cooper? But anyway, after that flashback, now we have Earl and Cooper standing side by side in a black corridor. And, you know, the Bond villain monologue recommences. And Earl says, sorry to put you through that, old boy, but I did need to secure your cooperation. And then he assures that Annie is actually still alive. So, yeah, Earl is officially the one steering Cooper's current Lodge experience. And he takes Dale to a room declared throne room by the script and it's it's after saying that earl needs cooper to volunteer for a mission made for a man of singular quality and this throne room is a black and white doctor's office with an elevated dentist chair some people call the place hell according to earl but they've got it all backwards this is the place of power 
So this basically associates something I remember from Mark Frost talking about how he thinks of the Red Room as an outer circle of hell. So this is all still an outer circle of hell that Earl is trying to manipulate. And in this doctor's office, Earl gestures over to Annie, who's trapped inside a glass medical cabinet looking on. And he says, here's the deal, Dale. Throne room. Wyndham. Wyndham sits on throne. Wyndham king. Wyndham happy. You know, then he talks about a problem. Wyndham needs to make a deposit first. That's how it works. Wyndham can't make deposit all by himself. Wyndham unhappy. Uh, and then a little bit more talking, and he continues, Here's where the designers show their ingenuity. In return for the best seat in the house, they want something in return. Guess what? Voluntarily offered, no strings attached, by its owner and operator, the soul of a good human being. Naturally, something I have in very short supply. That's where you come in. So yeah, put as plainly as possible, Earl's plan is to corrupt a paragon and use that power like Garmin Bosia currency and become a god. So they talk a little bit more. Cooper verifies that Earl will let Annie go and let her live, you know, which is strings attached. And Cooper then agrees. And then we have light shining on Cooper, on Annie. And the throne, which Earl sits on while singing back in the saddle again, uh, because, you know, he thinks he's won the power. So, yeah, that's pretty much Earl's plan. I mean, I, the way I'm currently thinking about it is, you know, the, the way this script is overwritten and overly clear and not ambiguous at all, really, the script, I feel, is kind of like the equivalent of what Earl thought it would be like when entering Lodge Space, you know, but from from the point of view of before he enters Lodge Space. Uh, you know, we get his full list of motivations and goals. You know, he thinks he's getting into the Black Lodge straight away and that he can just make things happen by playing with everyone like they're chess pieces. But, you know, based on what we see in the show, it's really the Red Room. And it's really David Lynch's logic that needs to be navigated, not Carl Jung logic. And Earl might just be a pawn in Bob's overall plan anyway. And that's what I'm going to be looking at next, after we hear some words from our fellow podcasters at the Ruminations Radio Network. Hey kids, it's Don Shanahan from the Cinephile Hissy Fit, one of the podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network. If you've been enjoying this show, come listen to Will Johnson and I fight it out over cinema's best and worst on Cinephile Hissy Fit. Find us and all the great shows over on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, welcome back. We are going to look into the next part of this episode with the question, how do the Lodge entities make Earl's plan their own? And I'm kind of thinking about it almost in a in a meta way where, I mean, okay, think about the differences between the script and the screen and, you know, how that makes for different approaches between Frost, Peyton, and Engels and David Lynch. I guess while you're considering that, kind of extrapolate what those differences kind of make you think of or, you know, how the uh, how the differences between them are shown and kind of think of like maybe Wyndham Earl kind of having a plan along the lines of the script while the Lodge Denison's kind of 
do it their way once they get there. And, you know, it all kind of works together and it all feels about the same, but it's definitely different. And like the script to the screen, the screen is all Cooper's point of view. And, you know, the script has more of Earl's point of view. So, like, you know, Earl goes in there with his particular kind of point of view of what he's expecting. But then, is it possible that he's just not in charge of any of it? (laughs) Even though he basically takes the same kind of path through it that he does in the script, for the most part. First of all, the thing that Earl wouldn't have expected is the fact that David Lynch is going to convert it all into the Red Room with its denizens in it. Instead of, you know, changing to so many locations and introducing brand new characters, it stays there instead of going, you know, Jungian dream style. And, you know, I know I kind of mentioned it earlier, but, you know, based on what we saw in season three, maybe we would have seen something more aligned with the script locations being included in here if there wasn't the tight TV production timetable. And, you know, Lynch and Frost had the space to get on the same page with it like they did in 2012 when they started planning the new iteration of Twin Peaks. Because there are still a ton of alignments between the script and the screen despite the differences and honestly if you look really close not too many of the script's plot points are left behind in the main show it's mostly just structured or you know in a different order uh maybe placed in a single location and delivered by characters that we already knew and it made it more efficiently and abstractly but the heart of all the story beats actually remain so first of all, there's always music in the air in both view, in both versions. But instead of listening to Wyndham Earl do an old school dance number right before Dale has to choose whether to offer his soul or not, Lynch brought in an old school jazz singer, Jimmy Scott, to do a number in the strobe light as Dale entered. And Jimmy Scott almost puts a lampshade where Cooper went by immediately singing under the sycamore trees, uh, the, those actual lyrics are the first things we hear once he goes in, in that first hallway with the armless statue. Um, You know, there's no need for a Looney Tunes sign if he can sing it, I guess. And, you know, add in strobe light effect to everything. And um, instead of meeting the hooded guardian, Cooper meets the little man from another place who watches Jimmy Scott with Cooper. And after we watch Cooper's face lit in different ways and flashes, we get Andy's flashlight as he finds locked on Harry in the woods. So Earl does know something about this setup because Cooper establishes himself into his lodge trial in the script and on the screen before Earl decides to intrude. In the screen version, we miss Cooper entirely in the shortened Act 3. We get, you know, the Harry and Andy in the morning scene, the bank explosion scene, and the whole double R thing, which does end up going back into the Red Room hallways at the end, thanks to the Sarah Palmer voice. But then Act 4 begins with a comparable scene to the uh, the one with the hotel clerk with the tracheotomy plug turning into Cooper's father and giving him a key that allows Cooper to enter the next stage via love. In here, in the, in the show, Cooper sits with the little man in the waiting room and meets Laura Palmer, you know, who gives him the I'll see you in 25 years words and, you know, the meanwhile with the hands and, you know, the snap. Yeah, I mean, there's all that stuff. And that almost seems to 
signify beginning Cooper's trial there. So maybe that puts Laura in the place of the hooded guardian. You know, there, there's a way to favorably compare them, at least. But Cooper's given a cup of coffee by the elderly room service waiter who seemingly transforms into the giant. And instead of saying, I love you, to a father-given key, Cooper appears to choose what state of coffee is in this cup. So instead of a blatant key, it's almost like, you know, coffee being the intuition fuel. It's like, what kind of intuition is Cooper going to use to proceed through this? And, you know, that's when we get a shot of fire. So that's how he enters into the next stage. And instead of Cooper immediately meeting his doppelganger like he does in the script, Cooper first meets other Lodge denizens. You know, there's an empty room. There's variations on the little man that we see. Maddie shows up and then Doppel Lodge Laura. And, you know, like I said earlier, instead of Earl being a nun, he may be disguised as Doppel Lodge Laura in order to stab Cooper here, who, after he gets away from Lodge Laura, realizes that he's bleeding as he gets away from her. Because while Laura is screaming, we see Earl's face flash three different rapid times um, while Doppel Laura is screaming into Cooper's face. So either Earl is part of Cooper's Lodge trial here, or this is when he's broken into it. Is, is, Doppel, is the doppelganger of Laura introducing fear into uh, Dale and that's what he's tuned to? Or did Earl decide to interrupt this way? And based on the script, I'm assuming this is Earl interrupting. But, you know, I mean, honestly, either way, Earl comes in in a sneaky way rather than just being there, beckoning to Cooper like Gerard does in season three. But yeah, on the screen, that's when Cooper, who is stabbed with the same wound as when Earl attacked and killed Caroline, this is when Cooper relives the moments when Caroline died. And she's on the floor with Dale, but, you know, maybe not the doppelganger. It's, it's tough to say at that point. But this whole sequence, after Earl's been introduced, is um, near inverted with the script, which goes seeing the doppelganger, then Annie and Caroline speaking as one, and then this flashback sequence when Dale confronts the moments when Caroline died before Cooper offers his soul to Earl in the dentist office but here cooper is confronted with the vision of his past trauma first the uh, you know the toughest moment of trauma in his life up until then which is kind of what i think the lodge trial does to a person um and then we have annie and caroline kind of flipping back and forth talking to cooper but before we get to see the doppelganger to make it a complete inversion, this is when Earl gets Cooper to give him his soul, which appears to be a likely impetus for the creation of the doppelganger in the first place. More on that later. And when Earl's talking to Cooper, we get way less villain monologue than we get in the script. Now it's just, if you give me your soul, I'll let Annie live. And uh, Cooper says, I will. And instead of spotlights in a dentist office, Earl stabs Cooper, plain and simple, repeating his original wound from Earl, except in reversed backward footage again. So, in a way, it seems like, you know, the, Cooper's bleeding before this room seems to have come from this, um, this inverted stab. And it kind of, in a... 
it, it gives this vibe that, you know, there's this twisted literal healing that comes from giving up his soul to Earl. And also there's an inevitability to this whole thing. Like there's no way around it for Cooper. And uh, then we get another fire explosion to kind of cap off this sequence in the lodge, you know, bookending after the little man says, wow, Bob, wow. And while the means will change, Earl in script and on screen gets taken out about now because he was actually in well over his head and he's taken out by Bob who takes firm control of the situation at this point. Maybe Bob knew that Earl needed to be the one to um, to take Cooper's soul from him or something. I mean, I, I don't know exactly, but Earl definitely feels like more of a tool from this point forward. In the show, the, um, you know, the, the darkness and the strobe lighting alternating uh, comes back and Earl and Bob are in a weak spotlight. Earl's scared and shouting at this point and Bob is laughing and he's holding Earl like a puppet. And that, to me, gives a hint that he's always had Earl as his puppet. Then Bob shouts, be quiet at him. And, you know, the spotlight goes out and Earl does quiet. But then Bob shouts again, be quiet. You know, now Bob looks over to Cooper and we get the backward laughing as we see Cooper, whose face is lit with this weak yellow light, but then stronger blue light in strobe, you know, flickering. And then we get another uh, wider shot of Earl and Bob together. Bob says he is wrong. He says to Cooper, you go. Then looks back at Earl and looks back to Cooper. And, you know, Bob, Bob continues to say, he can't ask for your soul. And, and then he says, I will take his. And, um, you know, the light's on, Bob, right up until it goes completely dark while he's saying, take his. So <laughs> that might have been the uh, the deciding moment when Earl's soul is now Bob's or something. But, you know, this is when Earl begins to shout and you know Earl gets louder and louder and Bob pulls a hand up, which pulls a stream of fire out of Earl's head. I mean, is that the source of the fire screens that we've been seeing? The uh, the the bracketing fire? Probably not, but it's definitely seeming related. And the fire burns out and flows back down into an orange ball shape that you know, and then and then basically nothing. So it's kind of like a geyser. And you know, then Bob looks back and brings his hand back down, kind of behind Earl's headspace, like he's making a grab. Now, as far as how it happens in the script, Cooper go agrees to give his soul to Earl, and Earl, uh, you know, his his desired throne reveals itself as a dentist chair that restrains him, and then Bob comes in as a dentist, and Bob's voice, not coming from from his lips, explains how Earl broke the rules, and you know, he, uh, Bob says, you know, it's no good if you don't volunteer; doesn't count if you're coerced. You know, then he says that it doesn't mean that they have to let Cooper go, though, which is an about face from how bob says you go to cooper here in the screen in the script we've got bob taking both earl and cooper's soul here and it happens via a dentistry metaphor which i mean it really goes a long way to explain i have to brush my teeth that feels a lot more like a non sequitur in the show and you know with, with the teeth metaphor you know it's like i understand that um Taking part of a person as an offering makes sense in Twin Peaks, but a tooth 
is not bone. I mean, it, it's bone. It's not blood. You know, it, it's structural, not the way there's energy flow to it with intention, uh, which is an important metaphor in season three. You know, I'm remembering Carl Rod saying, don't sell your blood. And, you know, blood comes up a lot over there, among other uses that I'll talk about as I see them then. We've got Earl kind of coming in like a judge or, you know, like uh, an enforcer of the Lodge rules. But back here in episode 29, it's much clearer that Bob, you know, he does understand the rules, but, you know, he's he's basically allowing Earl to do some things, you know, rather than, you know, just swooping in to do his own thing. Though maybe his own thing was through Earl. You know, in the show, we got Bob being in charge, just as he seems to have been back in Pittsburgh, when there are all kinds of signs in the My Life, My Tapes book that Earl was being possessed, maybe even by Bob. Um, You know, the evil presence in the autobiography that Cooper mentions somewhat frequently. He specifically points out times when he felt the evil presence, and those are the events that Earl mentions in the script, which means that Bob's plan for Earl, you know, it it may be before Earl was even involved with Cooper's life. Because after all, I mean, it's not Earl that seems interesting to Bob here. I mean, Earl, um, Earl's an easy capture, you know? He's, He's all into the... You know, the Dugpas, you know, blood for breakfast, blood for lunch. You know, he's that guy who, uh, you know, he, he's into it already. He's a fan. <laughs> Bob likes challenges. You know, he likes taking down people with a lot of Paragon potential. Yeah, I mean, he went after Laura for years, and now he's going after Cooper officially. You know, corrupting the good is basically his kink. And it's kind of interesting to bring up Cooper and Laura in the same in the same role for Bob, considering that the script's most major divergence that we see from what was filmed is after Bob says, you know, of course, that doesn't mean we have to let you go. He tries to use the medical device that he's holding on Cooper. But Laura Palmer intervenes by swooping in and uh, you know two things happen bob appears scared of her first of all which you know we never see bob actually express any other emotion other than appetite in the show but he more so in the script he and laura share a space a physical space you know and neither of these ideas quite feel right you know that said Laura and Bob collide at the end, and there's the sound of tremendous energies colliding. That's the script directions then. And, you know, the visual is white light as um, Annie soundlessly is calling to Dale. So I find it fascinating that the writers decided to bring Laura back here. Um, You know, so Lynch isn't the only one that's saying, you know, let's go full circle with at least Laura Palmer. And, you know, it's interesting that she kind of gets a moment where she can kind of come in and take back some of uh, her control over Bob, her killer. And I also find it interesting that David Lynch decides to not do this at all. And he moves Laura up to the front where um, she's there sitting next to the little man, you know, rather than in the climax, she's in the introduction to the Red Room which echoes the original season one, episode two dream. 
And another interesting change with the script is in the script, there's no presence of the doppelganger during the dentist office scene in the script. Um, you know, to me, that makes it well out of left field that Cooper would see Bob in the mirror that way at the end of the episode. Whereas, you know, Lynch's version is plain as day that the doppelganger grabs Cooper and that's what ended the scene in the show. But if you think about the season three that would have begun in 1991, based on this episode, it's pretty apparent that Major Briggs was going to be with the uh, the swordwoman chosen Harry to help take down the doppelganger, hopefully before Annie was killed, while Laura would be inside with Cooper, helping him from the lodge side of things, possibly to get out. And, you know, that makes me think that, you know, besides Harry not seeing the woman with the sword, the fact that Laura hadn't already begun battling Bob could be what Frost meant when he was talking about how they'd have to do extra legwork to get the narrative back on track after Lynch's changes here. You know, instead of a big action piece with a Bob-Laura battle in the show, we get Bob telling Dale, you go. So Dale's allowed to walk away from this sequence. And, um, you know, this is when the doppelganger runs in and laughs with Bob while Cooper goes down the hallway. And, you know, Cooper gets distracted by the doppelganger of Leland Palmer. And um, that's when he sees the uh, his own doppelganger at the other end of the hallway, which prompts him to run away. Though, you know, the doppelganger eventually catches Cooper and, you know, this is when Bob mugs for the camera with this laugh that all but says all is going according to plan. So, yeah, I mean, Bob is in control. Bob doesn't have to do any of the action. He arranges Windermere's hubris to do the job of unanchoring Cooper's soul from his body. He allows Cooper's own shadow self doppelganger, whatever it is, <laughs> to take down Cooper on his own before he even tries to leave the lodge. You know, it's like Bob doesn't have to do any of this. He's just working with the energies of appetite and hubris. So Bob's in control of Wyndham's plan, but does that really make him in charge of the Red Room? I mean, I find that really unlikely especially due to all the other denizens that we see in this episode. And that's what we're going to talk about next with my next question. What are the roles of the Lodge Spirits? So as far as what Frost's instincts are for what the Lodge Space is, he basically turns visual, dreamy elements into archetypes that can be interpreted in Jungian analysis. With these elements from the plot coming from Frost first for the first time, we have Lynch reverse engineering these archetypes into the Red Room landscape where we now have previously introduced Lodge Spirits filling the roles once occupied by Frost's archetypes. And from there in the future, Frost will again use those same Lodge Spirits filling these archetypal roles in their new roles to create a level of Jungian analysis that works for his brain when he and Lynch are creating the Bones of Season 3. But I think what this does is it solidifies what Lynch was already instinctively doing with these Lodge denizens. Essentially, between the two of them, uh, Lynch and Frost, these Lodge denizens end up 
being sort of representations of aspects within all of us, you know, much like the Greek gods and the myths that Lynch and Frost draw from in Modern Peaks. But as of now, while that's all kind of figuring itself out, what functions do these characters seem to fill here? And let's look at them one at a time in order of appearance. First one, I'm going to count Jimmy Scott. He is an unnamed singer who sings forward, much like how in the initial episode two Red Room Dream that Cooper has, that begins with Mike and Bob speaking forwards as Cooper enters that dreamy space. So Jimmy Scott may be a transitional function, tuning Cooper from the physical state that he was in to the state that he needs to be in to interact with this different frequency of a place. And I mean, song is literally frequencies, like it, you know, like it is and like it sounds. This song invites the little man from another place as well. You know, because after all, where they come from, the birds sing a pretty song. And as the song is also kind of beckoning Cooper forward, the song beckons both states of reality, the physical and the supernatural one, to meet in the middle, in this junction point of a place. And with the song, it also brings the darkness and strobe lighting. So is that a way to immediately show light and darkness existing in the same place? You know, who knows? But the singer is in mid-song when we first hear him, so... You know, yes, the lamppost Cooper now being under the sycamore trees. You know, it's a, a place setting in a way. But also, I mean, did the singer begin that song when Annie and Earl arrived? You know, is Cooper coming in on their coattails? And is he on Earl's desired frequency because Earl is the one who requested the song? Or it's for Earl? You know, who knows, but the the singer fades away when he is done, which means that that was his only role, the introductory song. He was not there to speak or to convey any other information to Cooper besides under the sycamore trees, essentially. And the next denizen I'm going to talk about is the little man from another place. And yeah, he enters the room via the song. And, you know, he's dancing to the saxophone solo in particular. So officially... His instrument in the Peter and the Wolf equivalent of the uh, of the Red Room song is the saxophone. That's his particular instrument. And I'll note, you know, we hear a lot of music in this episode, in this whole sequence, but we never hear the saxophone again. And we don't see the little man dancing anymore either. But yeah, while the song is still playing, he comes down and he sits on the blue gray chair, the one next to the red chair, <laughs> that's his chair next to the guest chair, both across from Cooper's Saturn lamp spot, but the little man's chair is in the middle. And the little man seems to fill the hosting role of the waiting room. He, um, he seems to facilitate comings and goings, similar to Philip Gerard, who will see fill that role in season three, and will see them connected more in Fire Walk With Me. So, you know, I mean, I'll talk about their connections a little bit later. But, um, yeah, the, the little man also announces when things will change. You know, he says, when you see me again, it won't be me. There is something that will happen and will change things and you know, possibly impersonate the little man or the little man will be evolving, perhaps. 
And then he gets up, he slaps his leg, which may or may not create friction or static electricity, maybe, and announces where Cooper is. And he says, this is the waiting room, which kind of rhymes with, I am the fireman. And um, then our host facilitates a little bit more and says, would you like some coffee? So, you know, he initiates the coffee arrival or, you know, maybe he just knows it's coming. And then he says, some of your friends are here. And this is when we get Laura arriving, uh, you know, stating when she'll be back and being gone. And then we get the arrival of the coffee from the waiter and the giant. And when Cooper touches the coffee, the little man is rubbing his hands together, potentially changing the state of the coffee or facilitating Cooper's ability to change the state of the coffee based on Cooper's choices, however that works. You know, like we, we see Cooper, he's holding the cup and he goes to drink it, but then he sees it's solid and he shows it at the little man like can you explain this crap and you know the little man is just smiling and you know still rubbing his hands together and we hear the hum and cooper tips the cup away from him at that point and it spills a little like you know it spills normal coffee and cooper looks to the little man again and when it spills the regular coffee cooper is actually spilling it away from himself and he can't see what it looks like when he does it and as that coffee spills out the the normal coffee that's when the humming subsides and next time we see the little man his hands have stopped now and he's looking away from cooper as if he can see someone off stage affecting things and the little man looks serious at this point. His hands are apart on the armrest, and he looks up and to his left away from Cooper. And Cooper pours away from himself again, except it's the sludgy coffee, you know, which kind of makes me think scorched engine oil. And little man at this point says, wow, Bob, wow, which is an interesting time to say something identical forward and backward as if it's the same whichever way you're seeing a reflection. It's kind of hanging a lampshade on the fact that we are at a junction point in a junction point. And, you know, the little man is appearing to acknowledge Bob's presence and Bob's potential interference. But yeah, little man finishes that phrase still in profile. And then he slowly turns back to Cooper and says, fire, walk with me. And that's when we get the explosion sound, the black screen, the... um. The explosions of fire with Laura's scream that goes up in pitch. And the Laura's scream continues as we're back on Cooper, but this time there's no little man anymore. So, in one sense, you could say this is where we'll now see the doppelganger of the character, or aspects of it, of the little man. Yeah, within this period bracketed by fire explosions... Are we seeing a different band of timeline, a different dimension, manifesting aspects of Dale Cooper's internal psychodrama? Assuming this is all part of a path within the same lodge space as the Red Room, named the Waiting Room earlier by the Little Man, let's look at the remaining three Little Man appearances that may or may not be the same guy. You know, because after all, when you see me again, it won't be me. You know, Cooper goes out in the hallway... But then he turns right back around and goes back into the room where the little man isn't. But then when he peeks in, the little man is there uh, saying, wrong way. And as the little man was gone when Cooper did leave the room earlier, this 
could very easily just be a different little man, you know, possibly benevolent and doing the normal thing where he's literally describing the situation plainly for Cooper's anchoring purposes. Or, you know, it could be inverted and wrong way could be the right way. Who knows? The next time we see the little man, he's laughing creepily in another room and going behind the couch when introducing Maddie by saying, you know, like, another friend. And it's very chaotic the way he's talking and laughing. Um, you know, it almost seems like an asthma attack or something. Is this a bizarro universe or is Cooper now officially going the wrong way now? And he's come across the little man's doppelganger, which, you know, we know he has based on the evolution of the arm having a doppelganger in, that we will we'll see actually speak to Cooper as the doppelganger in season three. And based on what kind of little man introduced her, it's tough to know if Mandy's a friend or not. And, you know, everything's been as reversed as their speech. You know, does friend now mean antagonist? You know, it's tough to know. But, you know, the next time we see the little man, you know, Cooper has moved on to another room and he's looking down at what appears to be an extremely small little man scuffing his feet on the ground, possibly for static electricity, and saying doppelganger. So... Is the little man announcing Doppel Lodge Laura or that he himself is a doppelganger? And, you know, why is he smaller? Is he smaller since he ducked behind the couch in the other room? Is he evolving into a tree right here, never to be seen again for 25 years until he's the evolution of the arm? You know, it stands to reason that he'd be disappearing from his current stature as he's missing when Cooper goes into Earl's proximity in this scene. But, you know, there's other reasons for that, too. And, you know, possibly maybe Bob has walled off the area from other entities or the other entities can't, you know, can't transition into Bob's part of the Red Room, you know, naturally. Hence the little man looking off camera to Bob. You know, re regardless of all the changes involved in all of the different nuances that I'm talking about here, the little man's role really doesn't actually change when he's around. You know, he's a supernatural concierge. He orients Cooper to where Dale is or who he will soon see next. And as I mentioned earlier, Lodge Laura is the first entity that the little man introduces. After the little man says, some of your friends are here, you know, we have Dale watching him as we hear footsteps and it's Laura's heels and, you know, cut to Lodge Laura sitting next to the little man. And we get a close-up on Laura, and she says, Hello, Agent Cooper, in that backwards way. And she does this slow snap where her two fingers are pointing down. And earlier in the year, I was watching uh, CBS Sunday Morning and seeing a segment of Peggy Lee from some kind of fever video that she did. You know, the uh, the song Fever. Um, and I have no idea where that video is from that they use, but there's a fire to that move, uh, maybe a spark even. And, you know, it's it's a hot little number that I'm pretty confident that David Lynch would have remembered if he had seen this. And, um, yeah, like, I, I think I think it's a kind of fire that he wanted to evoke there. But, yeah, it was it was interesting to see Peggy Lee just, like, snapping to the beat in that same pose with the arm held out and the two fingers pointing down. And we see Dale watching her, and it's back to Laura finishing that snap pose. And then she says, I'll see you again in 25 years. And she says, meanwhile, and knowing Lynch's interest in Buddhism... 
and you know all the all the analysis that has gone into this over the years with you know being able to get screen captures and whatnot i'm remembering specifically laura stewart speaking to emily marinelli on the twin peaks tattoo podcast she's talking about that pose that it's probably a common hand gesture of buddha called the abaya mudra which means no fear the abaya i'm i'm probably butchering the pronunciation sorry about that it's a sanskrit word which translates as fearlessness and it's made with an open palm of the right hand extending outwards at the level of the chest or higher when looking at this hand gesture we're going to feel you know we're supposed to feel energies of peace protection and senses of deep uh, deep and strong inner security which is an excellent gesture if she's in the role of the guardian at the gate or at all in alliance with Dale in a positive light, you know, some something akin to Dale's sponsor in his coming quest. And, you know, Dale watches her and he seems to look where Laura was as if just noticing. But then the next wide shot we get shows that Laura is now absent from her chair. And that's all we get of Lodge Laura through the rest of Dale's time in the Red Room. Though in the credits, we get a look from above looking down onto the table with the Saturn lamp. And then there's the coffee cup still there from overhead. And, you know, it's the traditional Laura's theme music in the, in the credits. And it's slowly fading into focus in the coffee. And we get to see an upside-down Laura smiling, as if to say, you know, whatever's happening in Cooper's Lodge trial, in here, everything is as it should be, and everything is fine. You know, it kind of goes along with, you know, have no fear, you know, here, here's something to um, protect your worries. So, yeah, I kind of think of Lodge Laura as, you know, being Dale's sponsor or maybe a guide or giving him advice before the trials begin. But why is this character Laura? If some entity is taking her form like a Jungian archetype, why her? And if it really is her, you know, how did she get that job? Is it because for Cooper, she is the one who brought him to Twin Peaks, etc.? I mean, you know, technically, that was Ronette crossing state lines, so I don't think so. Was she there helping him specifically because he could solve her murder? That makes more sense to me, especially as I tend to think that her kind of presence, especially ones who wear the ring in proximity to their death, are drawn into the lodge. And, you know, that makes me think about Ray Monroe showing up in the lodge after uh, Mr. C puts the ring on his finger. And, you know, Doppelcooper ends up in there in, at the end of season three, burning in the chair after Cooper puts the owl ring on Doppelcooper. And, you know, Laura wore the ring in Fire Walk With Me right before she was killed. So that can explain how that Laura how Lodge Laura arrived even when Laura's real body remained in the physical realm. And honestly, for Laura specifically, she has a particular trauma that could take a life as a tulpa, just as I suppose Diane Evans in Season 3's tulpa creation involves some kind of trauma at the hands of Doppelcooper. And, you know, obviously we know what kind of trauma it took for Laura at the end. It's plausible enough that this Laura tulpa can remain in the Lodge even after another part of Laura could move forward with her angel at the end of Fire Walk With Me. I tend to think that, like, these tulpas are 
or, you know, like these um, sides of people or parts of a person or an identity could be created from the trauma when she was killed by Bob and took the ring. And, you know, half of her could have been pulled into the lodge at her death. You know, the, the part that is in pain, the part that was just traumatized. Just like how I feel like the little man could be the lodge anchored part of Philip Gerard that was pulled into the lodge, you know, probably by the ring that they steward when Gerard made a, a certain severing of his own arm, you know, when he saw the face of God. And another reason why I like the idea that Laura's trauma and the little man's trauma is what brought them into the lodge in the first place is because you know, the little man calls Lodge Laura his cousin, you know, so they could be cousins by birth, um, you know, traumatic birth. You know, the, the why hinges on conjecture, but it gives a certain kind of logic that you can anchor this in anyway. And my logic will come in handy later as I look more into the presence of the Tulpa concept in Twin Peaks in future Blue Rose Task Force episodes. But as far as it goes here, it's, you know, definitely conjecture. So I'm going to keep moving on to the waiter and the giant. So, yeah, after Lodge Laura disappears, the next guest of the little man's is a way to pretty much prove that the Red Room is a junction point rather than the Black Lodge, you know, without needing Lynch's Rolling Stone interview where he said as much. You know, we have the presence of the waiter and the giant immediately following Lodge Laura. The waiter brings Cooper warm milk once before and, and eventually leads to seeing the giant. And now he's bringing Cooper coffee. So it's another beverage and bringing milk and then bringing coffee it makes me remember a thing that joel Bacco said on his podcast that he shared about lynch describing the red room floor as not black and white but a deep coffee brown and a creamy white so maybe you need the milk to be able to access the spiritual realm from the physical and maybe in order to access your lodge trial you need the coffee while you're in the red room and, you know, the, the coffee he brings does seem to be a transition point. You know, right after Laura's Meanwhile, we see the waiter now in that chair. And, you know, he's, he does this smile and whooping thing in that, you know, stereo, stereotypical Native American whoa, 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 kind of way that we see in movies and TV shows back in the day. But I think it has more to do with the oscillating sound of on and off in rapid succession kind of like in an electricity kind of way, because we hear that with electricity lines that Carl Rod looks up at in, um, what is that, part part uh, five or part six of uh, The Return. You know, not to mention we hear it in Fire Walk With Me as well. But yeah, this is when the waiter gets up and he walks over to Dale Cooper with a cup of coffee. And you know, he shuffles over and says, you know, coffee, like five different times. And he puts the cup down on the table with the Saturn lamp. And then immediately standing in front of Cooper the next time we see that shot is now the giant. And the giant walks back over to where the waiter was in the chair and sits down next to the little man. And that's when the giant says one and the same. So one and the same has so many different uses right here. You know, is he saying it because he's one and the same with the waiter who is no longer there? 
Is he one and the same with a little man who is there, you know, tall and short? Or, you know, is he offering Cooper one last bit of advice that the Red Room is one and the same with the White Lodge and Black Lodge potential? You know, is he giving Cooper some advice for what to do with the coffee? And it seems like this could be one last intervention to pull Dale from the Earl Trap portion of Dale's stay here. Or, you know, the giant is the sage, uh, you know, mentor figure imparting one last bit of wisdom for his journey. As he's been kind of sponsoring Dale, and imparting clues up to now, I assume that his role here is probably pretty similar. Though, you know, there was that gold ball that the Giants sent into Cooper's throat at the end of the season two premiere as well. And it makes me wonder, is this coffee here something that Cooper could take into himself too? You know, is the coffee supposed to be an armor, a, a tool available for intuitive thinking? You know, was Cooper supposed to, like in Alice in Wonderland, drink me? rather than pour it on the floor. It makes me wonder, is that why Cooper needed to hear his name as Dougie Jones in season three? And why his coffee cup at the Jones house says Dougie's coffee? Like, did it need to be labeled for him to actually drink it? You know, once he learned how not to just take it uh, from Phil Bisbee anyway. You know, plenty to talk about later, but it's it's got me thinking all the same anyway. But yeah, so enough about coffee. This is where the flames start, and we kind of go into this between the two explosions uh, section of the Red Room, where, you know, things might actually be reversed. And, you know, we're going to talk about Maddie. So yeah, Maddie's in the section in between the flames where, you know, things could potentially be backwards or reversed in meaning. You know, is it the wrong way because everything's backwards now or because everyone speaks untruth as part of this dark scenario? You know, is intention just as reversed as the inverted speech? And, you know, we we got the wildly laughing little man introducing Maddie as another friend. And, you know, Maddie here walks in slowly to the middle of the room she stands with one foot forward in front, you know, in a front three quarters view pose almost, and she just says, "I'm Maddie." You know, of course she had to introduce herself. You know, this is their first official introduction in the whole show where they're actually sort of speaking to each other, even though Cooper doesn't speak back. You know, the, the, she is the victim that Cooper never spoke to. Could that be what is meant for her presence here? You know, is she a reminder? of things that you know went bad already you know is this a way to get into or you know represent in an archetypal way cooper's subconscious that his fear is you know telling dale that women will die under his watch seeing maddie here is kind of a good introduction to annie and caroline which will be happening next and it's also a way to say remember me as a cautionary tale But it could also be just as simple as, you know, with all this inverted meanings of things, Maddie could just be this darker zone's representation of Laura. And she's actually able to give Dale another warning, as Laura always does. You know, hence, watch out for my cousin. You know, she could actually mean it and just not look like Laura. She could be the brunette version of Laura, and that's her particular inversion. That's what I mean. But, you know, watch out for my cousin. Is she talking about the doppel lodge Laura that'll be next? Or is it about the little man? As, you know, he's a cousin to the main Lodge Laura, you know, either makes sense and either seems kind of warranted. You know, regardless of her meaning, Maddie does seem to be 
either the last warning Cooper gets or the first part of the darker subterfuge that he's in the middle of. But let's ask the question, you know, why would she be Maddie or part of Maddie for real? Like, you know, what if this is Maddie as a representation in here? You know, how would she have gotten there? Was it the letter under the nail? You know, maybe... Maybe this part of Maddie transferred to this frequency of the Red Room by Bob when she died. You know, it's like the the Jade Ring has different allegiances than Bob's, but maybe the letters are Bob's own way of transporting people into this particular frequency where he can exist. And, you know, if, if that kind of thing were true, that would be a vote for Maddie not being a liar when she's speaking to Dale here. But regardless... Cooper takes her words and doesn't speak to her at all, just like he always does. You know, treats her like he's always treated Maddie. And he basically turns away out of frame, walks away. And, you know, that's when we see Maddie, who is still standing there in place, disappearing, just like Jimmy Scott did when he was done delivering his words. So, yeah, that's a vote for Maddie only entering that frequency to deliver a message. But, you know, <laughs> one of my pet issues, you know, Cooper, you had one last chance to say a single word to Maddie and you didn't take it. So, uh, yeah. But, you know, we do see Cooper as he's ready to leave the room, looking back over his shoulder as he opens the curtain as if, you know, maybe then he's thinking, you know, maybe he should say something. Who knows? All I know is that the next Lodge entity we see is the Doppel Lodge Laura. And we see her right after the little, little man announces, you know, Doppelganger, either about himself or what I assume is meant for the Doppelganger Lodge Laura, who could, you know, who could have easily been created for a purpose by Earl as a disguise. Or is the Doppelganger of Lodge Laura because, you know, the arm was allowed to have a named doppelganger and, you know, maybe Laura would also be allowed that as a lodge entity. And, you know, I've heard I've heard stories behind the scenes where even Bob had a doppelganger at one point, you know, dur during the behind the scenes stages of either this or Firewalk with me. And, yeah, when we see this doppelganger, she's holding the same hands pose as Lodge Laura, except, you know, with a lot more menace and anger. And it does fit the pattern where things are reversed or what is said could be the opposite of what is correct. And then, you know, she's she's angrily saying, meanwhile, and the lighting goes black with the strobe effect again. And, you know, she she and her scream rise. And it pretty much connects her scream to when the fire explosion begins in the first place, the one that sounds kind of like a tea kettle. And, you know, we see Cooper's profile in close-up, and he's got kind of a blue tone with strobe only. And we've got a small spotlight on far away Doppel Lodge Laura, and she climbs around the rear-facing red chair near her, and she runs so it's only her screaming face in the black strobe. And honestly, the way she gets around those chairs, it's kind of reminiscent of Bob climbing the Hayward's couch, but still not quite. And, um, you know, she's screaming right into Dale's face. And it's interesting to me that Dale is seemingly never scared of her. The only thing that really scares him is he flinches when he sees Wyndham Earl's face flash in. And, you know, th this Doppel-Laura doesn't seem to care if Dale's there or not either, because after he leaves that room, we see the camera go back into that same room, and she's still there screaming to nobody, just the camera, you know, into, into that fisheye lens uh, camera. 
which is a technique that only Doppelcooper and Bob will employ here. So it kind of goes with a motif that evil figures know how to look back at us, not just through in-show mirrors at other characters. As far as where else do we see Doppelodge Laura, she's in the place of Annie and Caroline for a moment, and she's the last thing in that space right before Wyndham Earl shows up. And because she's there, and then we see Cooper's face right after she screams, and he flinches after a few seconds, it kind of codifies that Earl could be inside Doppelodge Laura as a disguise, just like that whole Mother Superior thing with Annie. So yeah, Doppelodge Laura is either a disguise that doesn't really have an identity of its own, or you know something that Earl is subverting while he's there. Or someone who's manifesting Earl while Cooper is there. Yeah, this is basically just precedence for a number of different avenues of conjecture that you could be particularly fond of with your own theories. But aside from being a disguise, what if Doppelangelora isn't? Um, what is she? She expresses rage. Dale isn't scared of that rage. And she may or may not be an actual Laura doppelganger or a tulpa. And she's also missing for the rest of the show. So we're going to move on to Annie and Caroline. And, you know, thinking along the lines of um, actual personhood of Doppelora, it makes me think about the actual personhood of Caroline and Annie in this scene. After seeing Earl's face in with Doppelora, you know, Cooper has that injury in his abdominal region. He uh, reverses course you know, reversing course to follow the bloody trail of his injury that gets worse. And, you know, this is where he's genuinely upset to see Caroline and Dale on the floor where he kind of remembers this is where she died. And, you know, revealing a way that he's being forced to relive his worst trauma up to that point. And, you know, this is when Annie gets up about as unnaturally as the part 11 girl who vomited inside the car outside the double R when Bobby was investigating the bullet through the window of the double R. You know, Annie is way out of it. And she's there as Caroline wearing Caroline's dress. And it seems like she doesn't know why she's there. So it really seems like it could be the real Annie here being cast into Earl's play or, you know, Bob's play or whatever. Regardless of what kind of Annie and, um, you know, her level of involvement with it, it's a way for Cooper to really have the nail hit on the head about it is happening again with Annie that also happened to Caroline. And after seeing Annie as Caroline on the floor with injured Dale, that could possibly be the doppelganger at that point, but I don't think so based on the fact that he was silent and eyes closed we'll see the floor becoming an empty surface and the strobe light effect is on too so it implies either a scene is changing or there's time passing too and after a few little bits of different angles of the red room and whatnot it's kind of hard to now tell where cooper even is in relation to earlier scenes and after this disorientation, this is when we get Annie and Cooper's actual reunion, or actual in quotes anyway. You know, she's even in the black dress that she entered with when Earl kind of pushed her in. Except it could be that she's just a mask here because she's combined with Caroline here. It's Annie who says, I saw the face of the man who killed me. 
And we see in profile facing each other, Cooper is holding Annie at the elbow when she says, it was my husband. And Cooper says, Annie, as a response to that. And when we're looking at Cooper's face, we hear, it's me. And then we see it again. But this time, it's where Annie used to be. And we see Caroline's actress wearing the same exact dress that she died in. And this is the only time we see Caroline. So is Caroline possessing Annie in a way here, speaking through her? Or is she just another creation of Earl or the Lodge Trial or Bob or whoever? Or is she a manifestation in an archetypal way of Cooper's guilt to be used as a weapon against him? Anyway, it goes back and Annie says, you must be mistaken, I'm alive. And she reaches to touch Cooper's cheek. And, you know, this is Annie in Caroline's dress at this point. And, you know, she's reaching up to touch Cooper's cheek, except when we get the next close-up on Cooper's face, there is no hand up there touching his face. And that's when we get it switching over to Doppel Lodgelor across from him. And the fact that Lodgelor is there in the same place as Caroline and Annie, that leads credence to the fact that Annie and Caroline here are just figments of Earl's scenario or, you know, the, the Lodge trial scenario. You know, possibly even other disguises that Earl is wearing. Though I'd say it's definitely the real Annie who Earl seems to reveal when we get the profile shot of Cooper and Earl looking at each other and then er and then Annie fades in and then fades back out in about as much time as I just did. Um, you know, materializing and dematerializing right before Dale's eyes, as if to prove that Earl does have Annie in his control, quote-unquote. And you know, that's possibly the first actual time in, in the Red Room sequence that we see the real Annie. You know, regardless of hers and Caroline's status as beings, they are their role in Cooper's psychodrama is to elicit trauma in him and to elicit fear from Dale. And, you know, regardless of what Wyndham Earl thought that would win him, it sure seems to usher Dale Cooper into an even darker frequency, one maybe the little man can only shout to from somewhere off stage. Because the next time we see anybody else, it's Bob next to Earl. And, yeah, we are officially on the other side of the two fires uh, the, the two fire explosions now, which can imply that we're going into another deeper circle of the Red Room space. And this new area seems very likely to be more like an inner circle of hell, as the metaphor kind of alludes to in, in season three even. And this inner circle can now be seen once we, uh, you know, pass beyond the second explosion after Earl stabs Cooper and Cooper promises his soul for Annie's safe passage. And in this deeper and more negative circle, we finally see Bob and, you know, Bob is being a rules enforcer of all things. And I feel the need to know, you know, whatever kind of logy logic that Lynch thought was all wrong in the script, he did not take away Bob's strict adherence to rules or soul possession. And Bob kills Earl right in front of Cooper, laughs in Cooper's face, and Cooper only listens to him and then walks away calmly in a way that appears either completely oblivious to Earl and Bob 
or completely unconcerned about them. And this is when we see the next entity arrive, which is Doppel Cooper. You know, as Cooper is leaving the room, this is when we see the shadowy figure behind the curtains running nearer and, you know, laughing along the way, while Bob remains near Earl's empty husk. The fact that we're seeing Bob, it's not quite so jarring because we've already seen um, you know, Lodge Laura after Cooper left the room, still screaming. And uh, you know, we even get um in 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 regular Twin Peaks, quote unquote, um, you know, Pierre Tremont tells his grandma uh, she seemed like a very nice girl about Donna after Donna left. We got a little bit of a coda scene with them. So, you know, this is in keeping that we would see Bob here. But we don't usually get to see, you know, Doppelcooper running next to Bob and laughing with him nearly head to head, you know, doing doing yet another head to head connection in this uh, in this episode. Now, as I've said, David Lynch has said that the main drama is that Cooper is up against himself in this in this red room space, you know, a good Cooper and a bad Cooper. But it kind of makes me wonder about how they see this doppelganger creation as well. You know, because there's people like Mel's on Damn Fine TV podcast who say that Wyndham Earl's soul seems like it's part of this doppelganger. You know, it's possibly a Tulpa adjacent kind of creation here. And, you know, I can see it, you know, from the, the vague supernatural crime empire you know just uh have it for power's sake it seems and doppel cooper knowing where to get earl's specific briefcase that he's still using in the return so it has earl's knowledge in a lot of ways but the doppelganger also isn't on camera until cooper offers his soul to wyndham which could be how the doppelganger was kind of created that soul separation but there's this other way where you know bob while taking wyndham's soul could have taken a soul in possession of yet another soul two birds with one stone if you will between the constant laughing of the doppelganger and the timing of the whole thing you, you can make a case that wyndham earl is part of doppel cooper but, you know, any way you look at it, it does take correlation. So more than anything, I'm just giving you a popular enough theory to think on. But at this point, Cooper doesn't even know about the doppelganger of himself because he's too busy going down the hallway meeting Doppel Leland. And Doppel Leland, he stands in the middle of the hall and he says to Cooper with a knowing expression, you know, I did not kill anybody. And like, you know, he's like ready to laugh a little bit. And I don't believe that guy for a second. Um, you know, th this is one of the reasons why I'm most considering the reversed meanings uh, of what people are saying in this area that have been happening since that first fire burst and, the, and after the meanwhile. You know, because it sure seems like he's lying. And, you know, that that intimidation step-in thing that he does toward Cooper right after he says it, you know, like he's, like he's uh, you know, some kind of Frank Sinatra starting shit, you know, that, that was dangerous. You know, he implies that he has the ability to do it. You know, even if he's trying to say that, you know, Leland was the one who chose to kill in the physical plane, and it wasn't the doppelganger, you know, because Leland was the one possessed, not even the doppelganger. 
Or, you know, maybe the Leland doppelganger didn't show up until Leland died in the sheriff's station, you know, as, as part of his forehead injury. Maybe, you know, like that that's when the doppelganger made it to the Red Room or something. You know, it's like there more suppositions that you could do. But, like, you know, regardless, you know, maybe it wasn't the doppelganger who killed him because he wasn't born yet until Leland died. You know, whatever you want to say about it. Maybe the doppelganger is correct on a technicality that he didn't kill anybody, you know, because he wasn't even there. But the threat is still there. And it's plain and clear that, you know, regardless of why or how, that's not to say that he wouldn't have killed someone if he had the opportunity. But the presence of Leland gets a little bit more interesting because Cooper walks past the the Doppel Leland and as he reaches the curtain at the end of the hallway, this is when Doppel Cooper reaches the symmetrical opposite end of the hallway to form some kind of visual balance between them with Leland in the center. So Cooper continues on, and only then does Cooper uh, does Doppelcooper begin to move, you know, almost like they're kind of tied together, you know, when one moves the other is finally able to move, almost like a shadow. But Doppelcooper stops to share a knowing laugh with Doppel Leland as if, you know, they're having the best fun in this thing that's already a done deal. And like Doppel Laura before, Doppelcooper looks knowingly at the camera when he passes through the same curtains that Cooper just went through. And this is when we start to get Cooper running, which is where Doppelcooper gains ground, even when taking time to mug for the strobelit camera. And Doppelcooper eventually grabs Dale by the shoulder, and grabbing him by the shoulder is a move of support when face-to-face in 2017 episodes of Twin Peaks. But here, when, when you're grabbing someone who's facing away from you i guess it's sort of an intimidation move but either way it is a genuine connection and it's done in the room where the original waiting room setup is as if cooper was getting ready to exit into the main hallway that could lead to the outside and end the whole scenario but because you know they're caught this is when bob looms in you know the coopers disappear and the scene remains while we get bob laughing quietly and fairly satisfied right in front of the camera one last time like a predator and i've got to point out that this last sequence after the fire and we finally see bob there's one thing that holds this entire part of the scene together especially if you include the hints of earl being possessed in pittsburgh uh, that are found in my life my tapes It seems like every character in that part of the sequence is either Bob or someone Bob has possessed or will possess in in regards to Cooper. Um, You know, it's Earl, it's Bob, it's Doppel Cooper, and Doppel Leland, the last host. This particular frequency of the Red Room was Bob's section of the Red Room for sure. And Cooper was already trapped in it. He just didn't know it. That's where all the knowing laughter was coming from, probably. You know, it's like, hey, we're playing with our food. (laughs) Uh, But, um, yeah, I'll be going into that a little bit later. Because even with all of the scenes in the Red Room and all of the characters that we've seen in it, there are still some noteworthy absences as far as uh, Lodge spirits go. And that leads me to the next question. Why are Philip Gerard and the Tremonts missing? Now, I understand from a production note point of view, ABC 
the network that it aired on, didn't want a one-armed man on television anymore. So, you know, they, they probably stopped paying for him to be part of the cast. You know, there there's a actual business side for why he's missing. But how do you explain that away in here? You know, I mean, because if nothing else, Gerard is back in the movie and he's definitely back in season three. He's kind of taking over the concierge job that the little man has. You know, in season three, it's only Philip Gerard in the lodge with a few talking trees. And we only get like glimpses of Leland and Lodge Laura and Ray Monroe and Diane, Dougie the Tulpa and Mr. C. But Gerard is a constant in the Red Room. You know, here it's the arm representing their partnership. So is Gerard missing because the arm is able to speak for himself here? Unlike when he becomes a tree and it's harder. When the arm becomes the evolution of the arm, he is made out of wood just like Margaret's log. And maybe being wood like that, he needs help from a human being to be its conduit, you know, hence Gerard being brought in later. You know, maybe Gerard can't come in right now due to still being alive, though, you know, he'd gotten in there possibly via the ring in Fire Walk With Me, so that's not a completely done deal. You know, it's all conjecture, but it's all worth considering. I wanted to put it out there now to consider as I get closer to, you know, proper Fire Walk With Me coverage soon. And, you know, speaking of Firewalk with me, then there's the Tremonds. And, you know, I could also bring up the enigmatic jumping man who uh, becomes so important later on as a talisman of some sort. And, um, you know, there's a case to be made that Pierre Tremont, the grandson, is a younger, soon-to-be jumping man based on some of his behaviors in Firewalk with me. But, you know, technically, maybe the jumping man is there. You could, you could, uh, you can make a case that that voice that is possessing Sarah Palmer could be the jumping man because there's a lot of conjecture that he is connected to Sarah in season three. And, you know, why wouldn't it happen so early? I mean, after all, the jumping man's teeth are the ones smiling behind Sarah's flip open face in episode 14, as I've heard from reliable sources after that whole Laura homecoming photo theory didn't pan out. So, you know, maybe the jumping man was there in this episode while not being, you know, quote-unquote present in the strictest sense. Though, you know, jumping through hoops too far over something David Lynch hadn't even yet thought to add to the mythology is pretty much a fool's errand. Uh, I just wanted to kind of include the guy anyway. But, you know, there is a way to tie him to Pierre Tremont, the grandson. And it also gets me thinking how uh, Pierre and his grandmother were there at one of their meetings that Philip Jeffries monitored. So, yeah, the both Tremonts have absolutely 100% been present in a lodge-like scenario, and they are 100% absent here in the waiting room. But in a lot of ways, they're similar, similar to Gerard. You know, he's a ring bearer, and they deliver a painting. You know, they, they deliver helpful messages to Donna. Uh, they possess locations and take the names of their current residents and confuse people who interact with them so hard that no one asks questions about how and why that works. I think the simplest way to make sense of the Tremonts is this. The people missing in this episode seem to function most as messengers. They aren't needed in the waiting room or any part of the red room because Cooper's already there. He doesn't need to be drawn to it anymore. He's already received all the messages that he needs. And, you know, Cooper is officially outside of their official purview. 
And we're officially at a lodge entities that are needing to be talked about for this section. So that means we're finally ready to look into what happened to Cooper and, you know, where he may have failed. But first, we're going to listen to some more words from our fellow podcasters at the Ruminations Radio Network. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, welcome back. So our big question as first-time viewers after this episode concluded is obviously, why is Bob in Cooper now? Or, you know, I mean, technically, or is Bob in the doppelganger only, which, you know, we now know is essentially the case. But at the time, it was seen mostly as a straight-up possession because of our small sample size of what we knew Bob did and didn't do. But due to the moments inside the Red Room here... It is a new wrinkle in things. It is not a straightforward possession similar to Leland that we were forced to assume at the time. And, you know, the good Cooper, bad Cooper that Lynch works from is a lot different than that, too. But there is something happening, isn't there? And it all seems to hinge around the idea that Cooper failed when he confronted his shadow self. And there are a ton of theories around when and how Cooper failed. And honestly, about what failing even means here. So yeah, the next big question is, where did Cooper fail? And the first question is, did Cooper fail upon entering the Red Room? I mean, as early as Jimmy Scott's song, Sycamore Trees, Dale is put in the dark with the strobe light lighting, which, you know, could mean that he's been separated into good Cooper and bad Cooper immediately, and that we're seeing aspects of both with the lighting. And if that's the case, is being separated into polarities the failure? Is he supposed to remain whole the whole time? You know, is he supposed to be in balance with himself? And, you know, the same question goes for the coffee. You know, he could have been separated there when the coffee was changing states from liquid to solid to liquid again, and then to that oil-adjacent sludge. And then maybe Cooper could have failed when Bob was invoked, as was, you know, the fire walk with me line. Because when when the little man said, wow, Bob, wow, I mean, according to the poem, wow, Bob, wow is backwards and forward the same thing. So who knows? Maybe that meant something a little more, you know, like because of the coffee, the little man maybe split him and had him fail or whatever. And, you know, saying the poem or, you know, saying the end of the poem, fire walk with me, that kind of means, you know, according to the poem, you're a magician between worlds belonging to neither, possibly, you know, perhaps to non-existence when fire walk with me is chanted out. If nothing else, it does appear that the chanting brings forward a particular path in the Red Room. So, you know, remember that when Gerard chants that for Cooper in part 17, right before Cooper meets up with Philip Jeffries and takes a trip back in time, quote-unquote. Is Fire Walk With Me mentioned in words before one can re-experience a trauma that holds them back from being able to move forward, maybe? It's right in front of Cooper re-experiencing the Caroline and Annie section, and it's right before 
Cooper experiences the dream in the first place that kind of ties him to this fate. And it's right before we go back in time and re-experience Laura at the end of Fire Walk With Me, where it gets revised a little bit. You know, does saying Fire Walk With Me give the particular person a chance to re-experience and recontextualize trauma and have a chance at moving forward through it? Um, You know, giving a chance to break through the Black Lodge frequency that they will be subjected to and possibly forward into the White Lodge one. Because after all, this portal that Cooper has gone through is apparently the same kind of portal that Briggs would have gone through with the camping trip. But as far as the way it might work for Laura, I will be definitely testing that question when we cover Fire Walk With Me, because that whole movie is named Fire Walk With Me. But talking our way through it here... It does not seem exactly like the words are a mark of Cooper's failure anyway. But it really does give the impression of it being a little bit time loopy because right after that, there's the explosion of fire with the with the Doppelora teapot style screaming. You know, teapot, Jeffries, interesting rhyming there after what I just talked about. And the lighting goes back into the darkness plus the strobe light and the room is empty. And when Cooper exits that room, he enters the next hallway from the front left of the screen, seemingly identically to the way that he first entered the Red Room from Glastonbury Grove when he's hearing the Jimmy Scott song in the first place. Could it be that now he's in a deeper cycle, you know, inside the frequency of the fire, living through maybe an internal scenario while his soul erupts from his body in fire? Maybe he's in a new time loop. Maybe he's back to starting positions. You know, there are a lot of permutations here that I haven't even mentioned. And he enters into a room without anyone in it and then goes backwards to the room he, you know, quote unquote, came from where a little man says, wrong way. Did Cooper fail when he turned around and went backwards? Or possibly did he fail when he believed this this new version of little man when he said wrong way? Because it's possibly reversed words with their meanings. And then did Cooper fail when he turned around again to continue deeper into the scenario that he's now in? The next room that he enters is from a different corner, And it's where the wild little man and Maddie are. So does he fail when he doesn't speak to Maddie? (laughs) Because Cooper is using a different corner to enter, possibly he's accessing different rooms and therefore different hallways. So, you know, he might actually be winding his way through this place, even though the impression is that Cooper is oscillating from going forward to the right and then backward to the left, back and forth, almost like, you know, alternating current electricity that has, you know, forward and backward, you know, or positive and then negative electric charge and you know it really does seem like he's oscillating between these different sides of the same hallway even though you know statues change and whatnot but you know it seems like after that room cooper oscillates again back to the quote-unquote first room which is entirely empty until he sees the little little man and the angry meanwhile from doppel laura and then in that scream, she's got these three quick flashes of Earl seemingly within her screaming form. And, you know, three Earls, I haven't mentioned this yet, but you know, it kind of reminds me of the use of threes in season three. You know, the, the you know, from everything from the Fuscos to the, to the Pink Ladies and all that. And possibly three different frequencies of, you know, positive, negative, and neutral that Cooper is experiencing. 
and you know everybody else too so you know is this possibly one of those points where we see three different earls from three different directions that cooper can go with this you know is this a junction point moment where cooper has a choice to choose a positive outcome uh remain in place or choose a negative outcome and you know how many of them could lead to an instance of cooper failing you know did cooper fail here because he decided to follow the Earl subplot that happens to be a negative frequency or just the Earl subplot in general, um, instead of focused on staying on the main path of his. Is this moment here why he's supposed to watch out for Maddie's cousin? Because, you know, it's, it's one of these tipping points that could tip Cooper into failing. Whatever the answer is there, Cooper left no trail of blood as he ran away. But, you know, next time we see Cooper, he's he's back to not running. But he is now injured in his gut here after he notices the blood on his hands. And, you know, is that a metaphor for how he feels about Caroline? You know, there's blood on his hands because he let his guard down, got too involved, etc., etc. All the stuff that, you know, makes him nervous about <laughs> uh, starting anything with Audrey. Um, uh, you know, is, is, is this also why his injury has no source except when looking at it in reverse you know because he sees the result of the stabbing on his hands first and then he feels the injury on his gut and he's tracing it backward where he finds him and caroline on the floor you know embraced and you know after the damage that earl did to them and after the psychodrama that potentially makes Cooper think that Annie could end up the same way as Caroline, and he experiences them one and the same as if it's kind of already happened to Annie, Cooper allows Earl to create the wound that he's been experiencing up to now, thus both becoming injured from when he says, yes, he'll give his soul to Earl, and simultaneously closing off the bleeding. So it's kind of a full circle moment for Cooper in this way. But, you know, like giving up his soul almost gives him a relief for the past trauma. And it also makes this wound that he notices on his hands first feel really inevitable. And the backwards nature of Cooper's possible moment of failure here also becomes one of physical relief for him. You know, like he's been carrying that weight a long, long time. So, yeah, possibly Cooper's moment of failure is that. And definitely, if no, if nothing else, it's the last possible cause of the creation of Dale's split between the good and bad Dales. And that's when we get the the second fireball. And, you know, because the fire explodes a second time as Earl stabs Cooper, let's explore another scenario. Could the moments between that first fire explosion and this second fire explosion have all actually been happening internally in Cooper's mind while that fire is actually Cooper's soul escaping from himself? Just like Bob will do to Earl's soul in a few more seconds after he explains some rules to Cooper. That that jet of fire coming out could be Cooper's soul leaving his body after he says yes to Earl. And the fire pulls from him like a ripcord. And Cooper sees the whole time period inside his mind that we just saw. Except it's actually happening in a few seconds that it takes Earl to, to stab Cooper and nab that fire for himself. And then possibly 
Bob taking the fire from Earl is taking Earl's fire as well as Cooper's fire all in one fell swoop like that, you know, leaving Earl with nothing and Cooper with whatever he uh, somehow didn't offer to Earl at that point. Because, you know, rather than dipping his head down like Earl does, you know, seemingly empty, you know, Cooper keeps going, which means he probably has half of his soul left unclaimed by Earl because the one who offered his soul to Earl was probably just good Cooper. And, you know, again, all of this is unverifiable, but it's certainly fun to think about. And, you know, from this point forward, we are definitely following Good Cooper's point of view. And from that point, Cooper walks away from Bob after Bob tells him, you go. So, um, you know, is this a moment where Cooper fails, you know, believing Bob, you know, because he has no fear left? that he has half a soul now he just believes the bad guys <laughs> you know or is this when the table is finally set that he can finally confront his shadow self and meet the moment where he can fail because just like how he saw maddie the girl he couldn't save right before seeing annie the woman he's trying to save as caroline which is the woman he couldn't save now he comes across leland who is the previous host of bob as he meets his shadow self, future host of Bob, on the other side of the hall from him, and Cooper, who is the guy who's trying to save himself from this situation, begins running faster and faster. And the most common consensus has it that this is where Cooper should have, like Hawk said in episode 18, confronted his shadow self with perfect courage. Except I don't think this is exactly the failure here, because... Here's that other part of it, that his soul would be utterly annihilated from this point forward. But Cooper's still here now, rather than being engulfed in flame like his doppelganger at the end of his 25-plus uh, year run, where, you know, mind you, the world is still operating just fine, too, in the 2017 episodes. And that's when Doppel Cooper would be, you know, burning in a chair, um, you know, set on fire. You know, you can make a case that maybe Cooper hasn't been able to leave the Red Room and therefore maybe there's not much of him left or, you know, some other variations on a theme. But it's even easier to say that this trap Bob caught him in is not the final ending for our special agent. It's not his utter annihilation. And that leads me to the final question of the night, which is, is Dale within a process that's only just begun? You know, from this side of Twin Peaks, after finally seeing all the new stuff from 2017, this feels way less like Bob ensnaring Cooper for all time and more like the beginning of a process. And why do I think this? Well, I mean, first of all, the other Lodge denizens are letting this happen. The Lodge denizens like, uh, you know, the little man and Lodge Laura and the giant are all officiating Cooper's entrance into Lodge space. And they do so before Bob's trap is seemingly sprung. And it's as if the confrontation with the shadow self, you know, etc., is one step along the way of some process. And, you know, we see in season three that, you know, the fireman's plan it works in these really tiny incremental steps like that. So, you know, why wouldn't this episode be one of those tiny little incremental steps? And, you know, it sure seems 
like at least Lodge Laura knows how long this process will actually take is if, you know, she already knows how it's going to end because she says it'll be about 25 years before Lodge Laura will even see Dale again. And I mean, think about it in another way. Bob is not the one that drew Cooper into this Lodge scenario in the first place. You know, Cooper didn't piggyback in on Wyndham Earl's ankle to get in in the first place like he did in the script. He got help at the sheriff's station from people who are not at all aligned with Bob's negative frequencies. In that first scene at the sheriff's station, you know, with Dark Mood Woods playing through the whole scene, we've got Cooper staring at the chalkboard with the petroglyph map and, you know, Hawk's doing the same thing by the door. Harry comes in with bad news about locating Earl, but Cooper just says, giant, little man, fire, which, you know, gives credence to the uh, giant and little man being the one and the same spoken of by the giant in a way. And then Cooper says, fire, walk with me because he longs to see the path that he needs here. And he says it again, making the little man's instance of saying it before that fire in the red room, the third beat in the episode of someone saying fire walk with me. And, you know, maybe that map is literal. You know, the giant speaks, the little man prepares the coffee with the humming, the fire happens is Giant Little Man Fire actually a schedule? I mean, it's a nice rhyme, whichever way it is, you know, intentional or otherwise. But, you know, that's when Pete arrives and, you know, he says, Grand Theft Auto, the log lady stole my truck. And, you know, calling out the vehicle being searched for and also calling out the log lady who is bringing the, an answer soon about what to use when Cooper gets there. And, you know, Pete says he tried to chase it, but the truck took off toward the woods. So Cooper's intuition is now locked in, though. And, you know, much like Doppelcooper acknowledges food is coming when he's captured in the Buckhorn prison, we've got Cooper here knowing that Margaret will arrive in one minute. So is that from Cooper's intuition or a previously planned meeting. We don't know exactly, but, you know, he's he's on it. And Pete, fulfilling this uh, comedy character credo of having the actual answers without knowing that he has actual answers, says 12 rainbow trout, which triggers Harry into connecting 12 sycamores that he knows are in Glastonbury Grove, which Hawk adds that this is where he found the bloody towel in the pages of the diary. Which, you know, according to previous details, he didn't at all. But, you know, that's TV of the day. You know, it's not exactly altered reality issues, though, you know, that still fits just fine with any with anything in Twin Peaks these days. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, adding everything together from Pete's appearance, we now know that the good guys know Earl's whereabouts are connected to the Grove of Sycamores in Glastonbury Grove. And this is when the log lady enters exactly one minute later. And, you know, with Pete's steam, he's like, where's my truck? And, of course, Cooper says, Pete, Wyndham Wyndham Earl stole your truck. And Jack Nance's eyes staring at Cooper like the hell he did. Jack Nance is just comedy gold. And the log, uh, Margaret says, I brought the oil, which is the same quality 
of what I feel Cooper's Lodge coffee cup may have been spilling too. So, you know, is it the same kind of oil that he was spilling with the coffee? Who knows? But, you know, all Cooper says here is thank you, Margaret. So, you know, gratitude. Um, And um, this peaceful exchange has Pete second guessing things. And he says, well, it sure looked like uh, it sure looked to me like you. And, you know, we have Pete not being able to see the things disguised under the surface level of things. So, uh, yeah. But smiling at Margaret, we have Cooper saying, Margaret, what did your husband say exactly about this oil? So it seems like Cooper already knows the answer, and he just needs her to say it aloud to anchor the meaning properly, maybe. And just like Betty Briggs in Part 9 of The Return... We have a widow describing her dead husband's words from the past that had no context at the time, specifically in order to help with an unforeseeable situation in the present. And she says, He brought it back just before he died and said, This is an opening to a gateway. And then Cooper just says, Intriguing, isn't it? So he uncaps the jar. He takes a whiff, as does Harry who says Jacoby, and both of them together say scorched engine oil. So this is when Cooper asks Hawk to bring bring in Ronette Pulaski, who must have just been outside, outside waiting in the hallway for some reason. And she's got shorter haircut now, and she seems a lot more together, you know, moving past her trauma off camera. You know, she's even got a completely different kind of wardrobe, and she just looks like a, a more of a modern-day kid. And Cooper says to her, do you recognize this? And he leads her to take a smell from Margaret's jar, and this leads to her being scared immediately, and she retreats into Hawk's arms and says, yes, the night Laura Palmer was killed. So there's another instance of someone saying Laura's name, and it's not Ben Horn or even Annie this time. It's the witness to her death. So that leads me to think of two things here. Just like how Cooper made Donna read the diary entry in episode 16, regardless of how upset she was getting, we have Cooper coldly forcing Ronette into an uncomfortable state, you know, without a single, sorry, Ronette, you know, to to just further his own case information, not really respecting her feelings as a human. So empathy kind of going south there. But regardless of all that, because of Margaret and Ronette, we now know that there's a key to a gateway that connects to Laura's murder. And Cooper basically puts things together the rest of the way when he and Harry pull up next to Pete's truck in, you know, as they're entering the woods. And they're using Harry's light to get through the path into the darkness. And Cooper takes the light when he instinctively knows that, Harry, I have to go on alone. As he reaches the grove, the light he has makes a sphere of light, almost like a golden ball shape, if you will. And there's an owl marking the way, too, the same way it did when Briggs was abducted and in a White Lodge-adjacent way, which to me says it's more of that kind of thing rather than a scary Bob-adjacent force, necessarily. And Cooper uses the jar brought to him by the White Lodge-adjacent log lady in order to enter. So we have White Lodge-adjacent characters leading Cooper in, 
and I'm pretty sure they already knew that Cooper isn't ready to confront his shadow with perfect courage, but they'll give him information anyway to be used later. Because, you know, like the fireman gives a clue at the beginning of part one about Richard and Linda to cue Cooper up at the right moment that happens in parts 18 later on, almost near the end of the entire series. Except in part one, you know, Cooper says he understands, but, you know, the fireman counters by saying, you are far away, and then sends Cooper into yet another leg of Cooper's journey. And we have this time the giant saying one and the same, and, you know, for all we know, it could be that kind of long game kind of comment for Cooper to ponder over until he gets it at a later episode. I mean, it could be that... Cooper and his doppelganger are one and the same. And, you know, maybe one day he'll realize it and snap himself out of being a good Cooper and a bad Cooper and he'll just be Cooper. Or it could be future and it could be past. <laughs> but uh, whatever those meanings for one and the same, Cooper failing and being taken over by his doppelganger and Bob feels like just one stone at a time. You know, he needs to be concerned with the steps to evolve, like the evolution of the arm will. And thinking about evolving, that basically makes me think of the framework of alchemy. And I mean, sure, the alchemy hasn't made an appearance at all in seasons one and two by name yet. But, you know, then in, in 2006, we have the definitive gold box edition DVD set of the entire series. It's the one that brought the American version of the pilot back into its official place as part of the series in the way that they could present Twin Peaks in DVD after being tied up in publication rights hell for so long that I needed to buy the import edition from Japan so that I had any kind of version of the uh, the pilot that aired on television back in the day. So this is a set that's unifying into one set rather than <laughs> rather than needing an import set and the season one and season two DVD sets in order to make a whole Twin Peaks. This is the whole shebang all in one unit. And as far as I know, that's the only time the gold has come up at this point. But, um, and I really found it weird. You know, it's like, huh, gold isn't exactly, you know, a, a noteworthy color. You know, it's like it's, it's green or it's, uh, you know, it's, um, green or red, you know, and black and white or, you know, coffee brown and creamy white. You know, the, those are the color schemes of Twin Peaks, not gold. So, uh, yeah, it was on Lynch's mind, even before we finally see things that are codified in the secret history of Twin Peaks when Mark Frost finally brings alchemy up by name. And, um, you know, he brings it up again in Final Dossier. But even before that, in the 2017 stuff that um, David Lynch presents, there's a bunch of alchemy stuff, too. You know, maybe not quite so much by name, but, you know, let's think about how Margaret says that her log turns is turning to gold, you know, right before she dies. I mean, you know, it, it, it's in there. Turning to gold is an active thing that David Lynch decided to present to us in imagery. Yeah, alchemy is a process that happens in Twin Peaks, both according to Mark Frost and David Lynch. And it makes me think of Gazella Fleischer's 25YL article 
the, uh, called Twin Peaks and Alchemy, which basically notes how alchemists are trying not just to turn you know lesser uh lesser physical stuff into gold it also tries to refine the being you know not just matter and she notes all the alchemic symbolism right there in the petroglyph map that you know everyone was just looking at in the sheriff station scene of this very episode and Gazella lays out a complete seven-step transmutation, transformation process where, where she says, Step one, calcination, demands the ability to discard the ego and tread further without hesitation, in parentheses, fear. If you fail to do this, you cannot move on. And she supposes... Cooper is frightened by the risk of losing Annie. He becomes confused and scared by his meetings with Caroline, representing his scarred past. Wyndham Earl and Annie's strange behavior. Because of this, he fails, and a doppelganger appears to take his place. But, you know, obviously there's more room for nuance from from Gazella's article. You know, I'm not going to dive too deeply into that kind of a nuance but you know there there's room for this kind of nuance even back in episode 29 in 1991 because you know the season three that would have happened in a few months from then would have happened the next year on abc and they were they were going to get cooper back some way somehow you know there's no way to make him unable to return to the town from here i mean you know, there there was a way that he was going to be able to make it through this process so yeah gazella's step one calcination she writes the ego must be destructed detachment of material possessions humbling surrender of the hybris and i tend to think of the doppelganger replacing cooper as the event that would allow cooper's ego to be broken down to the point that he needed it to be in order to proceed to step two, which is disillusion, letting go of control, prejudice, and personal hang-ups, further breaking down of the artificial structures of the psyche. Though, you know, because this is Twin Peaks, I don't think this is the whole story. I mean, the alchemy model works great as a map and is very important, but, you know, this death of his ego by way of his shadow replacing him seems like it could also be going into step three, which is separation as well. And uh, Gazella writes, step three, separation, rediscovering the essence, deciding what matter to discard and what matter to reintegrate into a new, more refined personality, reclaiming of dreams and visions, Letting go of self-inflicted restraints. Which, to me, sounds a lot like what we're going to see in Season 3 from Cooper. And let's not forget about all the death and rebirth imagery already mentioned. I mean, the passion play from the Access Guide that will likely come into the plot in 1991 to uh, push back against the evil in the woods, that's named after the events that lead Jesus to die and be reborn in the Easter season. And there's all the Arthurian terms for King Arthur, who will rise again during the nation's most dire need. And it's also akin to the stuff that had J.C. Hotchkiss supposing that Dale was going through Bardo's after dying as she went through in her 
in her uh, three articles on 25YL in the Reincarnation and the Return series of articles. And I'm fairly convinced that Cooper going through Bardo's in order to be reborn into perhaps a Lodge entity like Lodge Laura or the Fireman, it matches up to the death of Cooper's ego, etc., in this alchemical path to evolution. And, you know, maybe he does need to die in some senses, but I have a feeling that for him to die, it's probably more like how, you know, he needs to end his story. And it really rhymes to me with, like, how in Part 8, that giant flashback scene with the bomb and everything is introduced after Doppelcooper is shot and or killed. And we get a flashback, quote-unquote, that might actually discard and integrate new elements as we get less far away from understanding. And then Doppelcooper gets up at the end of that episode, reborn in a way, made stronger from the flashback. And, you know, the death could be literal and metaphorical, and also on the path of Cooper's potential alchemical evolution. But, you know, obviously we're not there yet, not by a long shot. We may be done looking at the original series now, but, you know, there's plenty more on the horizon, uh, even before we get to season three. But before we can get to that, we've got to sign off here because we have looked at episode 29 enough for a very long time. So, uh, yeah, hope you've enjoyed your stay and... um You have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show, and we would love to connect with you on our various social media accounts. I'm barely on Facebook, Countersocial and Tribal, uh, slightly more active on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod. And if you really want to find me, I'm actually active on Instagram, Threads, and Blue Sky at Blue Rose Task Force, and Tumblr at Blue Rose Task Force. Force Pod. You can visit ruminationsradionetwork.com or our YouTube channel for additional great shows such as Oh God It Hurts and Ruminations of Red Rum. And you can find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles, including my entire Electricity Nexus column at 25YearsLaterSite.com or TVObsessive.com. If you want me to make another mailbag episode, I'm still rooting for that. Uh, Send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com or catch me with it on any of the socials. We'll see you next time as I share a lively conversation around the dinner table with my producer, Mitch Proctor, which will be quite soon, I promise. And then I'll catch you on February 24th to talk about the music of Twin Peaks Seasons 1 and 2. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. This is a, a gift to all the fans.